You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. If you haven't been with us for the last several weeks, we are in a series called In Christ. And really what we're doing is, uh, in Christ is a phrase that you'll find all over uh, the New Testament. And in Christ is a, a phrase that captures the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow uh, Jesus. And so every week we've been in a passage in the New Testament that, te- that, that has the phrase in Christ in it or teaches on union with Christ. Uh, and we've been considering three things. It's really three points to every sermon, a truth to embrace in Christ, a lie to renounce through Christ, and a step to take with Christ. First Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, you, you heard the language. There was all, a lot of language in those Verses and um, what that passage is doing is it teaches in a really beautiful way on our union with Christ, but it does so. It offers union with Christ. It offers being joined to Christ uh, in response to uh, sexual sin that was happening in the church in Corinth. And so this morning is all about how our union with Christ shapes how we view sexuality and sex. Let me offer the answer just right out of the, I wanna offer the outline just right at the very beginning to fight for some clarity. The truth to embrace in Christ is this. You belong to Christ. You heard that language in the, in the verse. You're not your own. Um, so all of you as a Christian, your soul, your body, your sexuality, all of life belongs to Christ. It's safe in his hands. He loves you. He knows what's best for you. But the language is strong language. It is to say you're not your own. You are united to Jesus. Here's two lies to renounce through Christ. I'll offer two this week. The first lie is your sexual desires define you. The second lie is your sexual sins define you. And then the step to take with Christ, uh, I lifted it right out of verse 20. Glorify God in your body. That's where we're going. Uh, I shared this story a few years ago. It's gonna help me, though, uh, uh, pastor this moment as we begin. Uh, When my family, uh, when my kids were younger, my oldest was five or six, my middle child was probably three, and then our youngest wasn't yet born. We're traveling to see family. So we're in the car, and Addie, our three-year-old, asks if she could watch a movie. And we had this portable DVD player that you could strap to the seat in front of her, and we had 10 or so DVDs there. DVD is a... um, We don't have time. Um, And uh, one of the movies we had was The Prince of Egypt. Remember that? It's the cartoon uh, Exodus story. It's got that song in it with Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. That's awesome. That's what I always think about. Um, So we we play that movie. It's right in front of of Addie. And we're going down the road. And and early on in the movie, if you've seen it, uh, the opening scene is super intense. It's... uh, Egyptian soldiers taking away children from Jewish families. The music is intense. The soldiers look mean. I think there's crocodiles or something like that. And Addie starts freaking out, just freaking out, crying, covering her eyes. And Carrie realizes what's happening. She's in the front seat, Addie's in the back seat. And so Carrie is reaching back, trying to pause the movie, but she can't reach it. And as a way to try to comfort Addie, she says, it's not real. It's just, it's just a movie. Like, it's not actually, you know, happening right now, which calms Addie down just a little bit. Well, Asher hears that, and he knows the movie is based on a Bible story. And so he gets real serious, and he says, Mom, it is real. It's in the Bible. It actually happened. And so then Addie starts crying again. 
And Carrie tries to explain, no, 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 the movie is pretend. And Asher argues with her, no, it's not, Mom, it's real. And I'm in the front seat just taking it all in. Um, <laughs> my daughter's crying, my son's yelling, my wife doesn't believe the Bible. It's <laughs> a huge mess. And uh, look, no one did anything wrong in that, but there's something that happened there in an innocent way that I don't want to happen this morning. Um, Asher was right, that story is real, it really happened. What he was saying was true, but what he missed was his sister's tears. Uh, he yelled what was true, but he did it in a way that didn't see how what he was saying was affecting his scared sister. Now he was five, he didn't know any better. Part of me was really proud of the, the conviction in that moment. But I share that at the beginning because in talking about sex and sexuality this morning, here's what I don't wanna do. I don't wanna yell truth in a way that misses you. Um, in a room this size, I don't wanna miss pain, I don't wanna miss confusion, I don't wanna miss shame, I don't wanna be right in the wrong way, I don't. It's said about our Savior that he is full of both grace and truth, and so my hope is, is to have the conversation in a way that he would have it. Um, and it's helpful for me to just name who I'm mindful of in saying that. Uh, some of you are, are here and you're single. Uh, you're single and you wanna be married, you're single and you used to be married, uh, you're single and you never will marry, and you'll hear this as a single person, and, and this could feel really isolating for you, even though I, I hope it doesn't. Others of you are married, and sex in your marriage has been a source of conflict, and maybe you thought that sex in marriage would just be this like uninterrupted euphoria, like some sort of Hollywood movie, and it's actually been really disappointing, and so often uh, the quality of the marriage, the, the, the things going on in the marriage, the symptom of all that's going on are some of the conflicts that can play out in intimacy. Others of you are here and you're same-sex attracted and out of love for Jesus. You're not pursuing those desires and maybe you're nervous that this sermon is gonna be for everyone except for you. Uh, or you could feel lonelier in a place where maybe you already feel lonely. Others of you are here and already you disagree with things that I've said. And, and you'll disagree with what the Bible teaches about sex and maybe you will feel judged Maybe you'll feel unloved. Maybe you'll feel unwelcomed in what, you're here, in, in what you hear. And I don't want that at all. There are people here now who I know disagree with what I'm about to say. I love them with my whole heart. Whoever you are, I am honored that you're here. And if you disagree at any point, it does not mean you're unwanted. Look, I just don't think that loving someone has to mean approving of everything about them. Some have been really hurt by sexual sin. Um, and this is, this is, I think, the most tender uh, person. Uh, you've been abused, you've been taken advantage of, your life is filled with pain and trauma because of somebody's sexual selfishness. And maybe that even happened, maybe that even happened in or connected to a church. And so talking sex in church makes you feel so unsafe. And goodness, if that's you, I'm just so sorry. And I, I pray the Lord uses this in some way to heal and to, and to comfort. Some of us have really hurt other people with our own sexual sin. I have, I have battled sexual sin my entire life. Uh, I regularly confess the lust that's still in my heart. If I think back on my life, some of my greatest regrets in life and some of my deepest sources of shame in life have been tied to sexual sin. There were moments this week where I stopped studying and started praying because I felt overwhelmed by my past failure in this area. 
And maybe you can say something like that. Maybe right now, even, there's some form of sexual sin in your life that you are enslaved to, and there's shame, and, and, and your plan is just to continue to hide and isolate. Or friends, maybe this is your first time here. <laughs> and you're thinking, I, we should have just gone to brunch instead, because <laughs> this might get awkward. Uh, the only point in all of that was to say, God sees you, God sees you, and, and, I'm, and, and so do I, and I don't wanna yell truth and miss you. Uh, grace without truth is for cowards. Uh, truth without grace is for bullies, and I don't wanna be either. More important than that, Jesus is not either. He is full of grace and truth, and I hope his heart's on display. You know, you might ask this, a question that I've asked myself this week, why even talk about this? <laughs> Like, uh, it, it could go so poorly in so many ways. I won't say all that there is to say, I won't. Uh, you might hear things I don't say. I, I just think that this conversation is most often had, it's most often better to have in smaller groups. So we don't, in this space, talk about sexuality and sexual sin that often for all of the, those reasons. So, so why talk about it? Because God talks about it. God talks about it. And because everyone else is talking about it all the time. Everyone else is talking about it all the time. It's one of our culture's favorite subjects. And what God has to say is just better. What God has to say is true. He speaks a better word about sex and sexuality. And in this passage, Paul offers our union with Christ as a uniquely true and beautiful lens through which we view sexuality and through which we flee from sexual sin. So the truth to embrace you belong to Christ. Christian, you belong to Christ. Look at verse 12. He says all kinds of confusing things right at the beginning. Uh, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Here's what's happening. Paul writes to a church in a city called Corinth. He started the church. He's heard that the church is having problems. They've got lots of problems. There's division. People are being weird with spiritual gifts. People are proud. One of the problems is a distorted view of sex and, a, and, and the presence of sexual sin in the church. And he addresses that in verses five through seven of his letter. Um, so there's a guy in the church who's having an affair with his stepmom, and he's bragging about it in church. And Paul says, guys, non-Christians don't even do that. That's heartbreaking and crazy. In the verses we're in, he talks about prostitution. What's happening there is Corinth is a Greco-Roman city that worshiped Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. They worshiped them in temples and prostitution was part of temple worship. It was also just, Corinth was just a place where sex for hire was rampant. And so some Christians in Corinth were participating in all of that. So the idea would be that some were sleeping with temple prostitutes on Saturdays and then going to church on Sundays. And those are just two examples of the sexual sin that's happening. So this church is filled with people who are confused, sinful, broken, and hurt by a distorted view of sexuality and by the presence of sexual sin. And part of that has just grown out of their cultural beliefs about this issue. So when Paul says all things are lawful, all things are permissible, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, God will destroy both, he's quoting not things that he believes to be true, he's quoting Corinthian beliefs. These are Corinthian slogans around sex and sexuality. Um, all things are permissible, food is meant for the stomach. What all of that is saying is we have the freedom to do whatever we want with our bodies. Uh, Corinth, like many cities at that time, believed that the body 
is just this empty, meaningless shell that holds the soul. It's, it's, a, it's a dualistic view of humanity. It would later be called Gnosticism. The body doesn't last, it's destroyed, the soul is all that remains, so what happens to the body or what I do with my body doesn't matter. And for some, what that meant was that meant that sex and sexual desire was treated just like an appetite. So he says, food's meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. The idea is sex is just an appetite, it's nothing more. When you're hungry, you eat. When you wanna have sex, you have sex wherever you can find it. It doesn't matter what you do with your body, so just do whatever your body wants to do. And that's what this city believed, and people in the church who grew up in the city were still formed by those beliefs. In other words, they got their view of sex from Corinth, not from Jesus. Pause with me, and I just wanna say something out loud that I think we all know. We live in a culture that also has a distorted view of sex and sexuality, where sex is an appetite, like maybe we've even taken a step further where we have said not only is it okay to pursue all sexual desire, but it's wrong to deny them. So the only morality around sexuality is that you can't say that anyone's sexuality is immoral. And it's, it's hurting us. It's hurting us. I listened to a sermon on sexuality by a pastor named John Tyson. He pastors in New York City. And one of the things he cited in his sermon was that premarital sex among Gen Z uh, is at historic lows compared to previous generations. So Gen Z is not having sex before marriage like previous generations did. And I heard that and I thought, well, that seems like a good thing. He goes on to say, but pornography use among that generation is at historic highs. Not having sex, but instead settling for a lot of pornography, which is a way to satisfy the appetite by completely removing the need for other people. It's just this digital transaction. And here's, here was Tyson's comment on it. It's a generation that finds other people too complicated and porn too easy. And that's not just a Gen Z problem. That's, just, that's not even just a non-Christian problem. A recent Barna study said that 41% of Christian men regularly view pornography. 41%. Dallas Morning News ran a story last year and the headline was Dallas is number one in infidelity based on data that was gathered by websites and Google searches and sites that help you have affairs. Dallas ranked as the most unfaithful city in America. Tyson said another thing about our culture that's worth repeating. He said, we mock covenants and eroticize strangers. And that's just a host of things that we could point to. That's just a few of a host of things we could point to. It's all to simply say this, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Like the church in Corinth, we live at a time of profound confusion, dysfunction, and brokenness around sexuality. What does God have to say to a world that is profoundly confused, dysfunctional, and broken? Well, the next verse says this. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Sexual immorality, the Greek word is porneia. It's actually where we get our word pornography from. And it covers a large list of sexual sins. You can find these lists of sexual sins throughout the New Testament, but it's any kind of sexual behavior that is outside of what God permits in his word. It includes both our actions and our thoughts. So God created sex. Uh, it's God's idea. Sex is a gift. It's not God, 
It's not the thing that satisfies the soul. Uh, Jesus was the most complete and joy-filled human who ever lived, and he lived his whole life as a single man who never had sex and, and, and was lacking nothing. But in God's good design, sex is a gift, and it's a gift that's reserved for marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. So any kind of sexual activity outside of God's design is sexual immorality. And the Bible will list sins that fall under that. It's sex outside of marriage, adultery, any kinds of non-consensual sexual activity, including non-consensual sex and marriage. And then when Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, he says sexual immorality includes the thoughts of the heart, not just the acts of the body. So any sexual behavior, actions and thoughts that are outside of God's design in marriage, that's sexual immorality. Here's what that means. Please hear me. It means every single one of us has or has had some sort of sexual brokenness in our life, some sort of sexual sin in our life. It takes different forms, it comes out in different struggles, but if it includes even the thoughts of the heart, then we are all in this together. Whether your struggle has been named or not, and usually what we do, especially what some of us as Christians can do, is we will try and ignore this by only being disgusted at or bothered by the sexual sins that aren't a problem for us. But the breadth and depth of what the word sexual immorality means and includes, it, it, it means that we all have to face falling short of this. He says this, let me read it again. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is so important. He doesn't say the body is not meant for sexual immorality, the body is meant for sex and marriage. He doesn't say that. He says something that's more foundational than that and something that's more inclusive of all Christians married or not. Not everyone's married, not everyone in that church was married, not everyone in this church is married and as good and beautiful as the gift of sex is in the context of healthy marriage, God's word doesn't offer that as the solution here. Instead, he starts talking about what? The body. Everyone has one of those. He starts talking about the, the, your, you as an embodied person. And he says, you know what you need to know? is You need to know what is true about your body as one who's united to Jesus. So the answer to Christians living in a world that's confused and broken is not you need a spouse. The answer is you already have Jesus. And then he expounds on what it means for our bodies to be united to Jesus. And he calls us to this faithful fleeing of sexual immorality by holding out a high theology of the body. He's gonna say four things about your body, Christian. Your body will be raised. Your body is part of Christ's body. Your body is sacred and your body is redeemed. He's talking about you. So he says, your body will be raised. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Jesus died, but did not stay dead. He, he rose again, and he defeated death. Look, it's been super quiet this morning, and you just missed a chance to amen. <laughs> and I, I'm gonna be honest, I really need it, okay? I'm kind of uncomfortable, so do me a favor, and let's try again. Jesus died and rose again. Amen. Thank you, you can go back to being quiet now. Uh, <laughs> So his resurrected existence is a picture of our future forever existence. This might sound silly, but this is the way it came together in my head. Uh, when Jesus rose again, he was in his body. Mary wanted to hug him because she wanted to hug the body that she had hugged before he was crucified. Uh, Thomas gets to touch his hands and his feet. 
his disciples rejoiced when they saw his face because it was the face of the one that they had followed. He was in his body. Your future, Christian, is an embodied future. Eternity is not a disembodied eternity any more than the resurrection was a disembodied event. It's, it's flesh. The great Christian hope is that we will one day be raised, just like Jesus was raised. Even if we die, which some of us will, we will one day be reunited body and soul, and we will spend eternity in our body. We'll be in our bodies forever. Now, it won't hurt. It will be glorified. It won't get sick. Maybe we can fly. Who knows? But I will be in my body, and you will be in yours. It's a mystery, obviously. But if Jesus had the same face, so will you. So will we. And Paul reminds us we will be raised. Why bring up the resurrection in a conversation about sex? Because if your body is part of eternity, then what you do with it matters. It's not a shell for the soul. Sam Alberry, he's a pastor and author. Uh, if you don't know of him, read everything he's ever written. It's, he's phenomenal. He says this about this verse. Uh, the main point for us to see here is that if our bodies will one day be raised, then they have a future. And if they have a future, they're not insignificant now. God's eternal plan for us involves our body. We can't write off our physical life as spiritually irrelevant. So Paul starts, you will be raised. The next verse, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Your body is part of Christ's body. The last line is a quote from Genesis that Jesus quotes a few times in his teaching. The two will become one flesh. And here's what it's talking about. It's talking about the union that sex creates between two people. Uh, the idea of flesh is not just skin, it's not just physical. Flesh is a word that encompasses the whole person. Tim Keller says it this way, flesh is not just physical matter, flesh is embodied personhood. And personhood is more than just flesh, it's emotions, it's the, it's the immaterial parts of us. And so what this means is, pl please hear me, sex is never casual, ever. Because sex is the, the joining of flesh between two people, it means it's always the union of personhood between two people. It's always more than physical, always. I, I think we know this. Like, I think regardless of if we agree with everything so far or not, we at least know that people should not consume other people for pleasure. C.S. Lewis writes in The Four Loves about a man who doesn't want a woman but simply wants pleasure from a woman. And he talks about this man like this. How much he cares about the woman may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition. And then he says, one does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. Isn't that heartbreaking? Meaning, the carton just brought me the nicotine and I don't need it when it's empty. The sexual partner just brings me the pleasure. I don't care about them when it's over. No one wants to be treated like the carton. No one. If, and if nobody wants to be treated like the carton, then it must be that there is more than just a physical transaction happening with sex. This is one of the reasons, friends, that sex is reserved for marriage. The, the, the overarching reason is because it points to something that's true about the story that God tells in his word, his relationship between him and his people. 
Another reason is that marriage is a covenant that pledges loyalty, love, sacrifice, and delight to a whole person that wants life with someone, not just sex with someone. And marriage says, I don't wanna consume you, I want to covenant with you. And if sex is unifying, if it's a joining of persons, God says, don't join your body to someone you haven't joined your life to. Because when you join your body to them, it's always more than your body. So don't trust someone to enjoy your body who won't also love your soul and everything else about you. And the only kind of promise that says, I will love all of you, I won't bail on you, I won't treat you like the carton, I will be faithful body and soul to you, that's marriage. It's the only promise that says that. Okay, the rest of the verse is really uncomfortable, isn't it? Take the members of Christ and join them to a prostitute. What he's saying is that there's a connection between our union with Jesus and sexual union with others. Your bodies are members of Christ. That's a metaphor for union. We talked about uh, the vine and the branches metaphor. Uh, us being the body of Christ is another union with, union with Christ metaphor. And it illustrates how in Christ, Christians are so intimately united to Jesus. Our lives are joined together so intimately. We are part of one another like two parts of the same body are part of one another. So the argument is crass. It's uncomfortable. But he's saying this. If you are united to Jesus... And if sex unites two people, then to go to the Corinthian temple and sleep with a prostitute is to take Jesus there too. Sam Albury on this verse says, we don't get to leave Jesus outside the brothel. If we go in, he goes in with us. And it sounds shocking and uncomfortable and unnerving because the Christians in Corinth and the Christians in this room are supposed to feel the dignity and the weight of being so joined to Jesus that everything we do happens in his presence. Where we go, he goes. I was watching a sports documentary a couple months ago and the coach was in the locker room uh, talking to the team about not partying on the weekends. And he knew that most of his team planned still to party on the weekends. And so he said, but if you do, if you are gonna go party, if you're gonna go to the bar and, and whatever, he just said, don't, just don't wear your team clothes. Like, don't wear the shirt with the team name on it. Don't wear the hat with the team logo. In other words, don't dress like you're part of the team. Basically, as a member of the team, he didn't want them to be identifiable with the team as they made bad decisions. And so all they had to do was, was remove the clothes and, and they would be unidentifiable then with the team. Part of what Paul is saying here is, as a Christian, you are at all times identifiable with Jesus. You can't remove Christ like he's a t-shirt. You're part of him. Whatever you do, wherever you go, you represent him as his body joined together with him. Everything we do with our body should be done in view that we are, should be done in the reality of being united to Christ's body, part of his body. So he says, your body will be raised. Your body is part of Christ's body. Verse 19, uh, we skipped 18 because I don't know what it means. Um, just kidding, we, just kidding. We were, we're just short on time. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with you, whom you have from God? This is just an astounding statement. If you've read any of the Old Testament, you know how big of a, temp, of a deal the temple was in the Old Testament? It's the sacred place where God's Spirit dwells. 
chapters and chapters just describing how ornate and beautiful it is. It's the chapters you skip in your Bible reading plan. There's poems that are written about it, songs written about it. People traveled from all over the world to visit it. Now it was special because God was there, but because God was there, it was special. And here Paul says, your body is sacred. It's a, it's a special place that God has chosen to dwell. The very spirit of God is among us collectively, that's true, but also in every Christian individually. The spirit of God has chosen to dwell with you. Among, it's a mystery, I don't understand it all, but I'm not gonna deny what the word says. And what that means is your body is sacred. And then he says this, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Your body is redeemed. You were bought with, this is redemption language. Um, it's saying that we were slaves to sin and death, but we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. The precious life of Jesus given in my place and in your place, that we might be set free from slavery to sin, and then we would find life not by being our own master, but by belonging to Jesus. That's why he says you're not your own. Now, that would be scary if we belong to Jesus and he's a tyrant, but he's not a tyrant. He calls himself a servant, one who loves you so deeply that when the price for you was his own life, he says, I'll pay it. Out of love for the Father and love for you, all of you, body and soul, have been redeemed. Okay, Paul writes to a people, profound confusion, dysfunction, brokenness around sex and sexuality. He teaches a theology of the body as the answer. You will be raised. Your body is part of Christ's body. Your body is sacred. Your body is redeemed, bought with a price. The truth to embrace is Christian. You, all of you, as an embodied person, you belong to Christ. Here's the first lie to renounce. Your sexual desires define you. You are your sexual desires. I am my sexual desires. Part of what the Bible has been saying is that there's something that's true about you, Christian, as an embodied person that is more fundamental to who you are than your sexual desires. You belong to Christ. It's saying your core identity is not tied to your sexuality. Your core identity is found in Jesus. That's good news. That is far better news than you are what you desire. Please, please hear this. Your sexual desires are too small a thing and you as a person are too meaningful a thing for the core of who you are to be summed up by who you wanna sleep with. But Jesus, being united to Jesus, what's said about you is that you're sacred, that, you're, you're, that, that you've been bought with a price, that you're inextricably joined to the best thing that's ever happened that is more than beautiful enough and satisfying enough and true enough to be the very core of what defines you. And if the core of who you are is Christ, then my sexual desires don't define my identity, they surrender to my identity. Meaning when it comes to sex, I have to surrender to what Jesus says, even if it's different than what I want. Hear me, please hear me. We are most true to ourselves as Christians when we are most faithful to Jesus. I wanna tell you about two interactions I have as a pastor. Please listen carefully so you don't hear what I'm not saying. I met with a guy, he's a Christian, and he was living with and sleeping with his girlfriend. And we met to talk about that. 
And we talked about God's design for sex and marriage and, and he was thoughtful and he was, he was kind. And, um, but ultimately, his response to me was, look, I, I plan to marry this girl anyway, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is you haven't yet given your life to one another in covenant, so don't give your body to someone that you haven't yet given your life to. That's God's word. And he disagreed and he left and he kept, to my knowledge, kept living the way that he was living. I also met with a guy who loves Jesus. And part of his story is that he's attracted to men and his earliest sexual desires have always been for the same sex. And he's a Christian, loves Jesus. And as he told his story, he articulated with wisdom and beauty and courage how he has come to trust the character of God and with that agrees with God's design and so as a follower of Jesus, he has committed to a life of purity and a life of singleness and a life of imperfectly but faithfully following Jesus. Which of the two men was true to himself? The one who was true to Jesus. One could not understand a God who would tell him he can't keep sleeping with his girlfriend, so he said no to God. The other found God so beautiful and so trustworthy that he says no to his own desires for the greater satisfaction of honoring his savior who loved him and died for him and knows what's best for him. And so the latter is a man who knows how precious Christ is, how meaningful his own body is in Christ, how he's been raised and how he's joined with Jesus and he's sacred and he knows he's been bought with a price and he knows that the great pleasure of life is being loved by Jesus. Your sexual desires do not define you. You belong to Christ and everything surrenders to him, finds its right place in obedience to him. Here's another lie to renounce through Jesus. Uh, your sexual sin defines you. You are your sexual sin. Um, it's just so easy. I'm sure for a myriad of reasons. It's just so easy to believe that all sins are forgivable except for sexual sins. Maybe our experience would tell us that there's no grace for sexual sin. A friend of mine in high school told her parents about sexual sin in her life. Her mom made her leave the house and before she slammed the door, she said to her daughter, I have never been more embarrassed of you. And I just think that so many of us think that God is like that. People in this church are having affairs, sleeping with prostitutes, committing all kinds of sexual sin. And we think of that, or we think about sexual sin in our lives, and here's what we expect to read from God. You would have been raised, but then your sin forfeited that. You were a part of Christ, but then he cut you off because you want what you shouldn't want. You were sacred, but the spirit of God left because of your affair or because you looked at porn or because you desire what's forbidden. You were bought with a price, but then you did the thing you said you'd never do and Jesus regrets the blood he spilled for you. Shame. It's just, it just can feel so crushed by it. And even friends, so much preaching on this and even our own thoughts on this, just get it so twisted. And we believe that we better stay pure or we will lose worth. So it's like we start clean and if we wanna stay clean, we better not sin in ways that make us dirty and disgusting to God and others. And that's not what's happening here. Your body will be raised. You are joined to Jesus. You are a sacred place. You have been bought with a price. All of it written to people who had committed sexual sin, egregious sexual sin. 
And he does not say you have sinned, so now you're ruined and worthless. He does not write and say you have lost your worth. He writes and says you've forgotten your worth. You've forgotten how much your body matters to God and how present your Savior is with you right now. Would you just imagine with me that in response to your sin, even your sexual sin, is not a God who kicks you out, slams doors, and yells hurtful things, but one who holds you by the face and reminds you that you're his, tells you what's true about you, that he's joined himself to you, you were bought with a price, you've not lost your worth, you've forgotten your worth, and I will never stop loving you, he says. You belong to Christ. You are not your sin. You are not your shame. You're united to Jesus. So God reminds us of his love that has not left. And then he calls us to faithfulness. Glorify God in your body. What might that look like this morning to step into that? My hope this morning was to not yell truth and miss you. Um, would, would you just, what I think is most wise and appropriate is just to ask you, would you just assume a posture of prayer with me this morning? I'm gonna keep talking. And I wanna ask us to consider a few things. But really what I wanna do is I wanna get out of the way and make space for you to talk to God. So would you pray? Just consider two things, friends. Would you ask God to comfort you where you might need to be comforted in this? Maybe you feel shame over past sin and you need the comfort of knowing that God has washed you and cleansed you and joined himself to you. Maybe you're single and you feel very alone in this and you need the comfort of knowing that you're bought with a price, precious to God, your savior was single and as a single human, he lived a full God-honoring life and lacked nothing and he's with you. Maybe you're married and this stirs up conflict and you need the comfort of knowing that you can ask for help, you can seek counsel, you're not alone. Maybe you're trying to be faithful. It's really difficult to obey God in this area and you just need the comfort of knowing you're not crazy for believing what the Bible teaches and you're not without grace for your failures. Would you just pray and ask God to comfort where comfort's needed in your life? Would you ask for conviction where conviction's needed? Oh, maybe there's so much in all of this that you are trying to navigate and untangle and where do I fit and what do I agree with? So would you just ask for the conviction that tells your heart that God's gonna be patient with you? greatest need is not to have it all figured out. The greatest need is to believe that God is trustworthy. 
And maybe you could just tell him, in this area, God, I trust you. Maybe, friend, um, oh, if the Spirit of God would be so kind. Maybe you need the kind of conviction that draws you out of darkness into the light, that draws you out of hiding into confession. You're going to have opportunities in this service to come down front and pray to find someone you know who loves Jesus and confess. But as I've been teaching from God's word about sex, what you have been thinking about is something that is hidden in your life. Some sort of sexual sin in the past that you've never confessed, some sort of sexual sin that just has you enslaved, filled with shame, filled with guilt. And, and, and you've thought about today, You've thought about a day like today, and today, a day like today, the, the idea of confessing what's hidden feels like the worst day of your life. Could you ask for the conviction to believe that what you think is the worst day of your life is actually the beginning of freedom and healing? You have only, you have only to confess, to make known what's in the darkness, that you might walk, you might be met with grace, God hasn't slammed the door and hurled insults. He shed his own blood and rose in victory that you might have a safe space to be broken and in need of grace and forgiveness. Would you ask God where convictions needed, God, would you convict? Expect God. Would you comfort your people? Would you convict your people? You're worth it, Jesus. Glorious and beautiful. We are yours. We belong to you. Help us. We need you. Amen.